What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Mailari. So tonight, very special episode, as always. Going to break down everything in sports over the last week. I'm going to start off by talking about the NBA playoffs, which actually, that will be my first segment. After that, hopefully by the end, I'll have the sports guru, Mike Hurley, come on. He's going to come on and talk with the Bruins, who won game one of their playoff series against the Florida Panthers last night. Big 3-1 to one win for the Bruins over Florida. Game two will be tomorrow night, I believe. Uh, but Mike Curley, the sports guru, will come on and give his takes on the Bruins, which would be great. Uh, one thing I want to mention, too, is I'll also talk about the Red Sox as well. I did go to the Red Sox game this past weekend. Got to see Mike Trout and Shohei Otani both play at Fenway Park, which was, which was great. So I'll give my thoughts on that game as well. And also yesterday was the Boston Marathon, so I got to see a lot of the runners running on Calm Ave, which was great. So I'll talk about that maybe for a minute or two uh, at some point. So I'll start off talking about the NBA playoffs, which now they're well underway. Saturday was a big win for the LA, or Sunday it was, was a big win for the LA Clippers. Huge win to start off their series against the Phoenix Suns. The Clippers are the five seed in the West. The Suns are the four seed. No one really gave the Clippers too much uh I guess the best way to put it is no one really gave them a chance. That's probably the best way to say it. No one really thought they'd be in this series without Paul George. Maybe win a game or two. But winning game one is a huge statement win for them, getting up uh, 1-0 lead over Phoenix to start off. Kevin Durant was 8-0 for, with the Phoenix Suns before that game. Now, obviously, he's 8-1 after that loss. But a huge win for the Clippers. And I think what spoke the best about that game was that the Clippers' depth is just elite. And if you look at the Suns, they didn't really have that depth. The Clippers' bench points... We're just way more than the Suns. I think it was around 30 to 5-ish, which I'm going to get that exact stat here in a second. But if you look at the depth, though, for the Clippers, that's going to be a big thing in this series is can the Suns figure out a way to get more bench points? Because at the end of the day, everyone knows the Clippers are going to be able to score points off the bench. They're going to be able to score points off the bench. And that's the question. Will the Suns be able to find a way to get points from their bench? Kawhi Leonard was elite in that game, 38 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists, adding in a steal and a block, 13-24 shooting from the floor, was 3-5 from 3. And the biggest stat line of that game, though, wasn't Kawhi Leonard, which obviously 38 points is great. It wasn't Eric Gordon, who had 19 points and had 3 threes. It wasn't Avita Zubats, who had 12 points and 15 rebounds. It wasn't Mason Plumley, who in limited minutes had 7 points and 11 rebounds and 2 assists. It was Russell Westbrook. And if you look at his stat line, if you're just looking at a box score and you see that he shot 3 of 19 from the floor and 1 of 6 from 3, you would say he had an awful game. If you looked at that box score and saw 3 of 19, you would say, oh, Russell Westbrook played awful. But the reality of the situation is, if you didn't watch that game, you wouldn't have known how good he was on defense, how much he hustled, the offensive rebounds. What Russell Westbrook did for the Clippers in that game was worth way more than what a box score is going to show you. Way more. And overall, 9 points, 10 rebounds, 8 assists, 3 steals, or 3 blocks, 2 steals, adding in 1 of 6 shooting from 3. Wasn't his best night from 3-point land, but he's been great for them shooting from the 3 since he's been an LA Clipper. But the 9 points, 10 rebounds, 8 assists, what most people look at in a box score, they'd say, oh, he had a good game on the glass, and and assist-wise well was finding guys open on offense. But I think what was, was better in that game than that was his ability on defense. Three blocks, two steals, had a ton of deflections. Every time that a player got by him, whether he was covering Derek, uh, not Derek, uh, whether he was co- covering Devin Booker or covering Kevin Durant, which he covered Kevin Durant for a long time. I mean, I think if you look at it, I think what Ty Lue saw going into the series was, okay, we have Kawhi Leonard. He's our best defender, but you probably need him in the paint. 
you have, which Kawhi did cover Kevin Durant as well, but he probably looked at it and said, okay, we don't have Paul George. We're losing one big wing defender there. Let's maybe put Russell Westbrook on Kevin Durant and see what happens. And Russell Westbrook was great. He was great on Kevin Durant. Made Kevin Durant struggle all night. Kevin Durant didn't score a field goal until midway through the second quarter. Was 0-5 from the floor, I believe, in the first quarter and the first three minutes of the second quarter. And he was making it so hard on him to get by. Every time Kevin Durant got by him, every time Devin Booker got by him, he'd strip the ball away, hit it out of bounds, deflect passes. Russell Westbrook was great in that game. And the Clippers have a chance. They're up by three points with, I believe it was, let me see here, three points with 17 seconds to go. Russell Westbrook, right before that, actually, the, the Clippers are only up by one point with 108 to go. Russell Westbrook gets fouled with 17 seconds to go, goes to the free throw and hits both free throws. The two biggest free throws of the game, he hits both of them. Then the next possession, Phoenix gets a ball down 111 to 108. And Devin Booker drives down the lane. Tries to get to the cup. Russell Westbrook blocks him. And as he blocks him, Devin Booker looks to the referee to argue for a foul call. Westbrook finds the ball in air, gets it, makes an acrobatic, athletic grab, takes it, throws it off Devin Booker's knee, clip his ball, and they end up winning the game 115 to 110. What a huge win for the Clippers. And I think it speaks so well about how great a coach Ty Lue is. And also that the hustler-dog mentality the Clippers had for the past couple seasons, it's back. It's back. So big win for the Clippers. And one thing that if you look at in that game was the bench scoring. The Clippers got uh, 14 points from Norman Powell off the bench. And I think if you look at the Suns bench, I mean, just they, don't, they don't have that scoring ability. Whether Torrey Craig's in the starting lineup, or uh, they also have Josh Okogie in the starting lineup as well sometimes. No matter who's in the starting lineup between those two guys, they don't really have much help there scoring. So I think, honestly, if you look at the Clippers, I think they're going to thrive in the minutes of Kevin Durant's on the bench. They're going to thrive. And that's going to be a big question mark. Will the Suns be able to find a way to get scoring without Kevin Durant and Devin Booker taking the shots? Ayton, DeAndre Ayton struggled shooting in that game. So we'll see what happens. Obviously, you guys know I'm rooting for the Clippers, but they're up 1-0 in the series. Game 2 is tonight in Phoenix. Hopefully the Clippers can find a way to get a big Game 2 win. But even if they were not to win this game... Being up 1-0 and potentially being up 2-0 or being tied 1-1 going into Game 3 in L.A., that's huge. That's huge. So we'll see what happens, but hopefully the Clippers can find a way to get a win in tonight's game. Now I'm going to talk about the Celtics. They currently are struggling right now in Game 2 against the Atlanta Hawks. They're down 22-13 with 3.54 to go in the first quarter. The Hawks have been getting a lot of scoring in this game from DeAndre Hunter. He has 10 points and 6 rebounds off 2 or 2 shooting from 3 and 4 or 5 shooting from the floor. Jason Tatum has 4 points with 4 rebounds, shooting 0 of 1 from 3 and 2 of 3 from the floor overall. Jalen Brown, 3 points, 1 rebound, and 2 assists, adding in a steal. And then Robert Williams has 4 points and a rebound already. He's the biggest X factor for the uh, Celtics. I think if you look at it, I think Brogdon and Williams coming off the bench, if both of those guys can have a good game on the same night when you're giving Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown rest, that's going to be huge. I don't think the Celtics will struggle too much in the series. I think, at worst, they lose a game. I think it, it, the Celtics in four or five, probably in five, I think. That was my prediction. I think the Hawks could steal a game. Maybe a Trey Young has a big 35, 40-point performance. That could be a type of night where the Celtics lose. And if Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are cold on the same night, that could be an issue, obviously. But I don't think the Celtics will struggle too much in the series. And what you saw... 
in that game against the Hawks was that the Celtics' talent level is just way larger than the Atlanta Hawks. And obviously the Hawks do have some good players, right? They do have DeAndre Hunter, who's a first-round pick. They have Trey Young, who's a top-five pick in the NBA draft in 2018. They have John Collins, DeJounte Murray. They have some young talent, some good talent. But the Celtics have Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Robert Williams, Marcus Smart. It's just a lot harder for a team like the Atlanta Hawks to compete against the Celtics. It's just not a good matchup for that team. So I don't think the Celtics will have too much of a problem in this series. We'll obviously see what happens, but as of now, it's 22-15. to 15. So that's one thing about the Celtics that I think obviously would help them is their ability to take over games scoring-wise. And you saw that in Game 1, they were up 30 points at halftime in the first game against the Hawks. But in the second half, they were outscored 55-38, to 38, only winning that game by 13 points. But getting the win, nevertheless, and that's most important. The Celtics won the rebound battle 61-52. to 52. They did have more turnovers, though, 16-11. to 11. That's one thing the Celtics struggled with last year in the playoffs, even when they went to the NBA Finals, they struggled with turnovers. But luckily, they still got the win in this game, Game 1, and hopefully tonight they do recover and get another win. Obviously, it's been a tough start, but hopefully they recover and get a win in tonight's game and go up 2-0. So a couple other series I'll talk about. The Knicks are up 1-0 over the Cavs. Game 2 is tonight at 7.30, tipping off in just about 8 minutes. That's one series that is an intriguing one to me, even though I think the Knicks could steal a game or two. I just think the Cavs are too good. Obviously, the Knicks did steal Game 1, so now the pressure is on Cleveland. Cleveland needs to get a win in tonight's game. They don't want to be going to New York down 2-0 in the series. I think the Cavs are just a better team, even though they did struggle in that game. Donovan Mitchell showed he's one of the best players in the NBA. His athleticism, his ability to score, his ability to affect the game, even when he doesn't have the ball, by just creating space. Where if you have Donovan Mitchell in the corner or on the wing, the defense is going to be dragging towards him and watching him at all times. So it opens up the floor for the rest of the Cavs. But you saw in that game on Saturday that he just didn't really have enough help around him. The second leading scorer for the Cavs in that game was Darius Garland with 17 points. Two or four shooting from three. Jared Allen, 14 points, 14 rebounds. But Evan Mobley, only eight points, did have 11 rebounds in that game, though, and a steal. Shooting 4-13 from the floor. Isaac Okoro was one of six from the floor, 0-4 from three, with just six points. Karis Avert had three points and was one of seven from the floor. He needs better shooting from Okoro, Lavert, Mobley. Donovan Mitchell deserves better. He gave you 38 points, 5 rebounds, 8 assists, a block, 3 steals, off 14 of 30 shooting from the floor, 6 of 16 shooting from 3. He deserves more. Julius Randle, Jalen Brunson, they did what they had to do in that game. Jalen Brunson was hurt towards the end of the regular season, came back at the end, and is playing very well, and obviously showed that in that game. 27 points, 2 rebounds, 2 assists, and 2 steals, 11 to 24 shooting from the floor. Julius Randle was hurt at the end of the regular season, missed the last few weeks. Was able to play in game one and produced heavily for the Knicks. 19 points, 10 rebounds, 4 assists, and 2 steals. 7 to 20 shooting from the floor, though. 3 of 10 from 3. Not his best shooting night, but you got to imagine he'll recover, hopefully, shooting-wise for the Knicks in tonight's game. And that's one thing I want to mention about the Clippers game. Russell Westbrook was 3 of 19 against the, against the Suns in game one. And I don't think Russell Westbrook is going to repeat a 3 of 19 game. If Russell Westbrook was 6 of 19 in that game, 6 of 19 that score would have been much, much more different. So if you look at it, the Clippers are in the driver's seat here. Up 1-0, all the pressures on Phoenix to win tonight's game. Just like all the pressures on Cleveland to win tonight's game. 
Everyone expected Cleveland to win game one. Everyone expected the Phoenix Suns to win game one. But the reality is when, it, when the playoffs roll around, roll around, you have to show up. You have to show up. There's no question of, oh, we can lose game one, we can lose game two, and we'll recover. No, I mean, in the playoffs, it's a four-game you know, set where you only have to win four games. You only have to win four games. So losing one game makes a big difference. It's not a very good season where there's 82 games, and you can lose one in the middle of February. In the playoffs, every single game matters. Every single one. And you saw that, obviously, for the Clippers winning that game on Sunday. They knew how much that game won meant. And even if they lost that game, I would have said, okay, the Clippers at least showed they can stay in this series and, and, hold, and hold their own. But the reality is, they deserved to win that game, and they did. Just like the Knicks, they deserved to win that game. Even though Donovan Mitchell showed up, no one else really around him showed up. Yeah, Darius Collins scored a little, but wasn't his best night either. He probably needs to do more. He probably needs to get 20 to 25 points to try to help Donovan Mitchell because he's not going to be able to get 38 every night. If he only gets 30, someone else got to make up the scoring. Whether it's Okoro, Mobley, Levert, maybe even Jared Allen. I mean, he had 14 points last game. Somebody has to help out Donovan Mitchell. So there's an 8 or run there for the Celtics. It is now a 22-19 game. Celtics are back in it with 132 to go in the first quarter. Another series I'm going to mention is the Sixers are up 2-0. On the Brooklyn Nets, I don't really see the Nets winning a game in the series, even though they were in that game, even through the third quarter yesterday. I don't see them being in the series. I have the Sixers winning this in four games. Now it's 22-11, so that was the 9-0 run there, or 8-0 run there. Uh, the Celtics are down one. 11-0 to run now. There we go. So there's a lot going on, obviously, in that Celtics game. 22-22. to uh, Celtics now are all tied up. It is 2-0, though, in the sixes over the Nets. I don't really see the Nets winning a game in that series. Joel Embiid and James Harden are just too much for the Nets team. Even though the Nets have a nice young core in Mikael Bridges and also having Cam Johnson, who had a monster game yesterday, I don't see them winning a game in this series. And even if they did, I mean, that's just going to be the most they get. Cam Johnson had 28 points yesterday, four rebounds, an assist, a block, two steals, 5-11 shooting from three, and 11-19 shooting from four. But it wasn't enough to stop Tyrese Maxey, 33 points, one block, 13-23 shooting from the floor, 6-13 shooting from three. Joel Embiid was a monster on the glass, 20 points, 19 rebounds, 7 assists, 3 blocks into steal, was 6-11 shooting from the floor. I think the Sixes win the series in four games. Then you have the Kings, 2-0 over the Golden State Warriors. A lot of people said, oh, the Warriors will be fine. I mean, even though they were losing games at home or on the road in the regular season, they'll find a way to win when the playoffs roll around. Well, the reality is they're now down 2-0. Couldn't steal a game in Sacramento. And their record on the, on the road in the regular season was 11-30. They had a 33-8 record at home, which was the third best in the Western Conference. 33-8 record at home in the regular season. On the road, 11-30. They were 11-30 in the regular season on the road, which, is, which was the third worst record in the Western Conference on the road. And the fifth worst overall Record in the or fourth worst overall record in the NBA on the road. The only teams that were worse, the Rockets, Spurs, and the Pistons were all eight and thirty-three on the road. The Golden State Warriors were eleven and thirty on the road, and now they're down 0-2 to the Sacramento Kings, which is abysmal. I mean, they probably want to steal a game, obviously, in Sacramento and go back to Golden State with a chance to make it three to one going into Game Five in Sacramento. But now, down 2-0. And have no option but to win the next two games. As on Sacramento Kings, 
They got a big win in game one, 126 to 123. It was a very close game, very entertaining one. De'Aaron Fox at 38 points, five assists, and a rebound. Adding in three steals, was 13 to 27 shooting from the floor, four of eight shooting from three. Malik Monk, former teammate of De'Aaron Fox at Kentucky in 2016, had 32 points, three rebounds, two assists. Adding in two of four shooting from three, 14 of 14 shooting from the free throw line, and eight of 13 shooting from the floor. Huge game for Malik Monk in that one. And obviously it shows the firepower that Sacramento Kings have on offense. DeMontis Sabonis had 12.60 rebounds and two assists. Steph Curry was the best offensive player for the Warriors in that game. No surprise. 11 to 20 shooting from the floor, 6 of 14 shooting from three. 30.6 rebounds and two assists. Great game for him. Klay Thompson, 21.6 rebounds and five assists, adding in 5 of 14 shooting from three. So 11 of 28 shooting from three for the Golden State Warriors in that game from Klay Thompson and Steph Curry. So 11 of 28, pretty good shooting night for both of those guys. The Celtics here at the end of the first quarter, up 28 to 25, got a buzzer beater three out of Malcolm, Malcolm Brogdon, 42-foot three uh, at the buzzer to get the Celtics the lead. Uh, right before the end of the first. So, impressive run there for the Celtics to close the first quarter. I'll keep you guys updated there. As for the Kings game last night, the Kings had a big win, 114-106. to 106. They're now up in that series 2-0, as I said. They dominated the glass in that game, 58-46. to 46. They did also find a way to turn the ball over less. They only had 14 turnovers. The Warriors had 20 turnovers in that game. Shot just 32.5% from three. They typically are better than that from three. But the Kings weren't great from three either. Nine of 38, which is 23.7% from three-point land. But the main difference in that game was the talent level on both teams is obviously high. You look at the Warriors, they have an ability to score. The Kings have an ability to score. But the difference is the Warriors are not young anymore. They're not a young team like they once were. The Kings are hungry. They're young. I just feel like they have more heart and, and, and more desire to win right now. Maybe it's because they didn't make the playoffs for 17 years in the, the Sacramento Kings. Fans all filled up the arena yesterday. Maybe it's because this is the first time making the playoffs in so long and they're just so hyped. But it just didn't seem like the Warriors wanted it as bad as the Sacramento Kings. In that game yesterday, there's a very controversial play that got Draymond Green thrown out of the game on a flagrant foul. He was grabbing, or he was getting his foot grabbed by DeMontis Sabonis, who was laying on the ground. And Sabonis grabbed his foot. Draymond tried to get out of it. Whether or not it was intentional, who knows? When you know Draymond Green has had the history in the past that he's had of poking LeBron James in the eye and uh, a couple other things he's done as well. Uh, poking LeBron James in the eye. And there's one other example I'm trying to think of here. Obviously, stepping on Sabonis' chest. He's had a lot of examples in the past of getting into arguments of players, having dirty plays, and yesterday was getting his foot grabbed, trying to get out of it, ends up stepping onto Monte Sabonis' chest, he gets thrown out of the game for it. Whether or not you think it was a rightful, rightful decision by the referees to throw him out or not, the reality is, with Draymond Green's tracking history, he's got to know he's got to be better than that and have to be smarter than that. He has to know, okay, we're down 1-0 in the series. This team cannot take any of my antics. But Draymond, as he always does, just beats to his own drum. Did what he did. Got thrown out of the game for it. And the Warriors are now down 2-0. I think this would be Draymond Green's Last playoff run with the Golden State Warriors. I do not think they're going to bring him back next year and have the headaches and the distractions he brings to the locker room anymore. Obviously, he's won four rings and is one of the best veterans in the NBA, has seen it all, whether good or bad, has been out there for a lot of key moments of the Warriors over the last five to eight to ten years. But 
The reality is, he's not the player he once was. Brings a lot of distractions. Has had problems in his own locker room. Obviously punching Jordan Poole last year. He's had a lot of issues. So we'll see what happens with Draymond Green in the offseason. But I don't think his time with the Golden State Warriors will, will be around much longer. So another series I'm going to talk about is the Lakers and Grizzlies series. The Lakers are up 1-0 in that series. And I think the Lakers are going to win this series in six games. Memphis is already without Brandon Clark for the year and Steven Adams. And now John Morant, who said his pain yesterday was at 10 out of 10 after suffering an injury in that game in game one on his right hand. Even though there were no breaks or fractures in his hand, his status for game two is still believed to be in question and he's still suffering from significant pain. So we'll see what happens. But as of now, they're already without Brandon Clark. Steven Adams has the knee injury. Brandon Clark is an Achilles tear and could be without John Morant with that right hand soreness. So we'll see what happens. But they're not going to win that game without John Morant. They're not going to win that game without John Morant. Give me one second here. I'm going to grab a phone charge. I'll be back with you in just 10 seconds. I apologize for that. But just in the break here, I just saw a text from the biggest fan of the show, Tim Loftus. I appreciate you always listening in. He said, no tolerance of such behavior about Draymond Green. He should have been thrown out. I would agree with you. I would agree with you. Whether or not it was intentional or not, and you can say he lost his balance because his foot was getting grabbed, Draymond knows what he's doing. He's probably not going to get up the floor and be able to get back on offense anyways. So doing that just didn't make much sense. Whether or not you're going back on offense or defense, you're already behind the play anyways. And it's going to be, at worst, a 4-on-4. Because Sabonis is going to get up and be able to get up there as quick as you are anyways. So I would agree with Timmy. I, I, I do think that he deserved to get thrown out. He did deserve it. It's now a 31-27 game in the Celtics game. The Celtics are up in that one. Or 34-27, I should say. A three-point Jason. I apologize for going backwards really quick. Just want to repeat what I just said just so it's on the recording since there's some technical difficulties there. 34-27 in that Celtics game after that Jason Tatum three. And I did mention... Just a second ago, which I'm just going to repeat it so it's on the recording after Spotify. I think the Grizzlies, if they were to be without John Morant, I don't see them winning more than a game without if they were to. I think it'd be Lakers at five, John Morant were to be out. I think realistically it would be out game two and then maybe be back for game three. And I think they can win a couple games with John Morant, but I still would take the Lakers in that series, whether it's in five games or six games. In reality, with Steven Adams being out with the knee injury, Brandon Clark being out with the Achilles tear, they can't afford John Morant being out with only Luke Kennard and Dylan Brooks and Jaron Jackson Jr. being their only options to score. And neither one of those two players in Luke Kennard or Jaron Jackson Jr. Or, or any of the three of those guys, I should say. Brooks, Kennard, or Jaron Jackson Jr. None of those three guys are number one options. And that's just a reality. Though John Morant is not going to survive that series. So I'm going to take the Lakers in six games or five games. We'll see what happens there. It's now 40-32 Celtics. Uh, and one other thing I want to mention here is the Nuggets series uh, versus the uh, the Nuggets versus the Timberwolves, which I mentioned just briefly a second ago, which I'm only repeating as I said because it wasn't in the recording. The Timberwolves struggled in that game, losing 109-80. to They were outscored 32-14 to in the third quarter, and after that, it was really just ball game. They were down 29 points heading into the third quarter, and that was just the end of the game for them. Too hard to overcome that big of a deficit, even though they did tie the Denver Nuggets 22-22 to in fourth quarter scoring. The reality is... They were getting dominated on the offensive glass. That's one thing that the Timberwolves did very well. The Minnesota Timberwolves did very well on the glass against the Oklahoma City Thunder in the final play-in game to try to get the eighth seed to play the Denver Nuggets. 
But against the Denver Nuggets, they got out-rebounded 65-48 to in Game 1. 65-48. to 65-48. That's a huge difference maker right there. And then you add in as well how poor the Minnesota Timberwolves shot from the floor. 30 of 81, which is 37% from the floor. They were 11 of 36 in three-point land, which is 30.6% overall. But as for the Nuggets, shot a lot better, 41 of 90, which is 45.6%, 16 of 39 from three, which is 41%, and got 24 points, eight rebounds, and eight assists in a block out of Jamal Murray, who had four of 10 shooting from three. Nikola Jokic, great game as always, 13 points, didn't really have to take as many shots he typically does, six of 12 shooting from the floor, 14 rebounds, six assists, and a steal. Colin Anthony Towns, 11 points, 10 rebounds, 2 assists. Anthony Edwards didn't have his best night with 6 of 15 shooting on the floor, 1 of 4 from 3. 18 points, 2 rebounds, 5 assists. Rudy Gobert, 8 points, 13 rebounds, and 2 blocks. was 3 of 5 from the floor. They got a lot of offensive production out of Colin Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert in that final playing game versus Oklahoma City. That just did not happen, though, against the Nuggets in Game 1. Game 3 will be tomorrow night at 10 o'clock. I think the Nuggets probably win the series. I originally said Nuggets in six. I'm probably going to lean towards Nuggets in five at this point. But we'll obviously see what happens there. Last series to mention. Surprise win for the Miami Heat in game one over the Milwaukee Bucks. But after the injury to Tyler Harrow, who Tyler Harrow will, who will be without, who they will be without, I should say, for four to six weeks with a broken hand, I don't see the Heat winning more than one more game in the series. I think the Bucks probably win this series in six games, obviously with Giannis Antetokounmpo's injury, that is something to monitor, but they are optimistic that he should play uh, at some point in the rest of the series, even though it is doubtful to, to, for tomorrow's game. I think they do expect him back at some point. I think they can win. If you take Tyler Hero out and Giannis Antetokounmpo out, and you're playing with Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo versus Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday, I think the Bucs can still win in Brooke Lopez. Well. I think the Bucs can still win a couple games in that series, even without... Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think Miami probably wins one more game. I think the Bucs recover tomorrow at home, get a win, have it go 1-1 in Miami. They split again in Miami 1-1, so it's 2-2 after four games. And then hopefully, worst-case scenario, Giannis misses a game or two. He's back for game four or five. Then after that, probably all business for the Milwaukee Bucks. They're a finals contender all year, obviously a favorite going into the season. And rightfully so, this team, when Giannis is healthy, it's really hard to compete with them. Not many teams in the East can do that. But a very big surprise win for the Miami Heat in, in Miami Heat in Game 1. I thought the Heat would take this series to six games. I think it'll probably still go six games. But without Tyler Hero, they're missing a big piece on offense. Hero at 12 points, two rebounds, and two assists in 19 of 28 minutes of action. 19 minutes and 28 seconds of action. With 5 and 9 shooting on the floor, 2 of 4 from 3. Jimmy Butler had a great game, as always, as he does in the playoffs. I made this point last week. I'm going to say it again. Jimmy Butler is the most valuable player every single time that the playoffs roll around. Every single time the playoffs roll around, Jimmy Butler is giving you all he has. 35 points, 5 rebounds, 11 assists, 3 steals with 15 and 27, 15 and 27 shooting from the floor. Adding in uh, plus a plus 17 rating and 5 of 8 shooting from the free throw line. Max Strews, who was hot for the Heat over the last couple games. Had only 8 points in this game with 5 rebounds and 2 assists. 2 of 4 shooting from 3. They need more uh, shooting production out of him. He might actually even jump into the starting role with Tyler Hero being out. Could be. Uh, it could also be uh, maybe a guy like Gabe Vincent, uh, you know, staying in the starting lineup. Maybe throw Kyle Lowry in there and have it be Lowry and Vincent as the starting guards with Jimmy Butler and Max Struess and uh, Bim Adebayo being the starting. And they they have multiple ways they can mix this around. I think Tyler Hero being out 
Probably means Max Struess gets even more minutes now. We only had 38 minutes of action already in game one. He'll probably get even more minutes of action, maybe even 40 in the next game. But imagine Kyle Lowry only got 18 minutes of action in game one. Probably gets around 20 to 25 now. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. But uh, I'd imagine Kyle Lowry probably jumps into the starting role. Jimmy Butler, as I said, gave everything he had in game one. As for the Bucks, they only got 10 minutes out of Giannis Antetokounmpo, six points and three rebounds for Giannis. They got a great game, though, out of Chris Middleton, 33 points, nine rebounds, and four assists, adding a 12 of 20 shooting from the floor, two of seven from three. Grayson Allen probably will have to step up. He's going to have to take even more shots now. He's five of seven from the floor, two of four from three in game one. He's going to get even more shots now with Giannis being out. He'll probably become their third scoring option. It's typically, obviously, Holiday, Middleton, and Giannis being the one, two, three in no particular order. Giannis usually being the one. Drew and Middleton splitting time between two and three. But now I'd imagine... It'll have to be probably Grayson now taking those shots that Giannis typically takes. Even though Bobby Portis stepped up in that game at 21 points and 8 rebounds off 9 of 15 shooting from the floor, was 0 5 from 3. I think it'll probably be, I'd imagine, Grayson now taking more points, taking more shots. And you look at the Bucks' depth, they have great depth. That's that starting lineup with Drew Holiday and Grayson Allen. And Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez, a great starting lineup. And then you add in Wesley Matthews and Joe Ingles and Jay Crowder off the bench and Bobby Portis. That's great depth. So I think they'll be fine. I think they win the series in six games. Game one is tomorrow at 9 o'clock. So now I'm going to jump to talking about the Red Sox really quick. I know it's 745. It's been a pretty quick episode here, uh, which I'm going to talk about the Red Sox. Still going to talk about the Bruins as well. Hopefully the sports guru, Mike Curley, can come on. I'm going to give him a text in just one second. Give me one second to text him, and then I'll be back with you guys in just one minute. So I went to the Red Sox game on Saturday. It was a big game for the Red Sox. The Red Sox were playing, or Sunday it was actually, I apologize. Yeah, Sunday, the Red Sox were playing the LA Angels. It was game three of the four-game series. And I got to see Mike Trout and Shohei Otani play. My brother Paul and I went to that game. Uh, it was a great one to see. I think anytime you have the opportunity to see Otani and Trout play, especially on the same team, in the same lineup, back-to-back in the batting order, you have the opportunity to see two of the greatest baseball players of my generation and two of the most talented baseball players of all time. I mean, Mike Trout is the modern-day Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle played 20 years in the MLB, made the All-Star game, I think, in all 20 seasons. Mike Trout is the same, just just about the modern-day version of Mickey Mantle. So when you, when you have the opportunity to go see Mike Trout play, you have to cherish that and obviously go. And that's what I did. That's what my brother did. We got to go and see those guys play. And even though Otani and Trout were both 0 for 4 in that game, I combined 0 for 8, having the opportunity to see those guys play in person is just an honor, really. And I've been a fan of both guys for a long time. Otani, only jumping into the MLB around 2017. I've been a fan of him since then. But Trout, I've been a fan of since he was a rookie. Took over the MLB right away as a young rookie and the same time was, I think, Bryce Hopper was a rookie as well. So both guys stepping in and, and catching the eye of baseball. And both are in the spotlight from a young age, Mike Trout and, and obviously Bryce Hopper. But point I'm saying is here is that Bryce Hopper and, and, and Mike Trout obviously are two very good and talented players. And they've been, obviously, once they stepped into the MLB, they've been two of the better players in baseball since the day they started. Then when you add in a guy like Otani, which... He's only been in the league now since 2017, just about. But when you have the chance to go see Otani play, who's the modern-day Babe Ruth, it's, it's no option. You have no option but to go see that team play when you can. And that's why I like the Angels. I love Otani. I love Trout. And being able to see both those guys suit up and bat second and third in the order back-to-back is just truly 
Uh, an honor to see. It really is a sight to see. And as I said, they're 0 of 8. They've obviously had better games. 0 of 8. You don't see that very often from those two guys. 0 of 8 doesn't happen too often, but being able to see those two guys in the same lineup is just something you don't get to see every day. The modern-day Mickey Mantle and the modern-day Babe Ruth playing together at the same time. And the way I look at it is, realistically, Otani probably won't be an angel next year. He's a free agent at the end of this season. He's looking to get probably around 50 to $60 million per year in his next deal, and rightfully so. If you look at his numbers as a pitcher, which he did pitch against the Red Sox yesterday, it was a rain delay on Marathon Monday. So apparently, uh, you know, he will be pitching, I guess, on Friday now since he didn't get to pitch a full game yesterday with the rain delay and the game resuming later. He didn't end up uh, being able to come back out on the mound since typically you don't want a pitcher coming back after that long wait. You don't, you don't want them to come back and then obviously hurt themselves. Otani, that game yesterday, gave up, let me see here, get this full stat line. He went two innings, giving up one earned run, three strikeouts to one walk, and has a .86 ERA on the year. He had a .47 ERA on the year heading into yesterday. It did raise, uh, it did rise a little bit yesterday. The Red Sox had raised that just a little from .47 to .86. He's now given up just two earned runs on the air, 21 innings pitched, giving up just six hits, and has 27 strikeouts with 13 walks in those 21 innings with a whip. Just give me one second here to get his whip stats. And a whip of, give me one second here. His ERA is .86. I'm just trying to get his whip. Uh, Since overall, I mean, if you know Otani, you get to see him play, you know he's dominant on both sides. Whether it's hitting, whether it's pitching, you know Shohei Otani is dominant both ways, and here's his whip here. It is .905 on the year, which is great. He was fourth in the Cy Young voting last year. He's going to be up there again this year. He was second in the MVP voting last year in the AL. He's going to be up there yet again. And I think he's looking for around 50 to $60 million next year. He obviously got the biggest arbitration deal in, MVP, in MLB history, I believe. I think it was the biggest ever, $30 million, one-year arbitration deal. Uh, for this season, and I think he's going to get somewhere around six years, $300 million next year. Maybe as of now, which, let me see, that would be $50 million per year, 300 divided by six. But I think if you look at it, he could arguably get, let's say, 425. Let's do the math here. 425 divided by eight, or let's say 10. Ah, eight. Eight's better. I think as of now, he could get eight years, $425 million at $53.125 million per year. It sounds like a lot, but you're getting... $25 million for Shohei Otani as a hitter. You get a $25 million for Shohei Otani as a pitcher. And obviously adds in so much value for what he does outside the game, off the field. And I got an opportunity to see that on Sunday as well. After the game, my brother and I waited on Jersey Street to try to have the opportunity to see him. And even though we didn't get to see him, if you got to see that crowd, which it is on Twitter if you look up, uh, Shohei Otani... After the Red Sox game on Sunday, you know, the crowd, the Shohei Otani crowd of everyone trying to see him after the game, you just get to see how big that crowd was to meet him. And I've been there for games, after games, trying to see a team before they go on the bus. Last year, I tried to see the Toronto Blue Jays before they go on the bus. There was a handful of, people, handful of people, maybe 15 to 20 people. There was probably around 100 to 150 people waiting to try to meet or at least see because meeting him is going to be hard to do with that crowd and Obviously, there's not going to be many people that can fit against those guardrails. You know, it goes pretty deep, the crowd back. So not many people are going to be able to see him, even in the front. But the amount of people that were trying to wait to see him were exponentially larger than the people that were there to try to see the Toronto Blue Jays when I tried to see them last year. There were probably 15 to 20 people trying to see the Blue Jays last year, maybe 30 tops. Otani 
which Mike Trout, I'm sure, drew some of those people on Sunday. But Otani, what he's been able to do for the game of baseball internationally is just unheard of. It's unheard of. And you saw that in the World Baseball Classic with everyone in Japan watching that game. Everyone around the world watching Team USA versus Team Japan in that game. Everyone wanted to see Mike Trout versus Shohei Otani. Everybody wanted to see Shohei Otani on the mound to close that game. And it was a picture-perfect ending. Mike Trout versus Shohei Otani. And speaking of Otani, he already started off hot tonight. The Yankees are playing the Angels in New York. Otani already started off that game with a two-run home run. And if you look at it, right, Otani, what he's been able to do for the game of baseball on the field is obviously great. Everybody wants to see him play. But what he's been able to do off the field, all the Otani jerseys you see walking around, whether you're at the Red Sox game, the Angels are playing the Red Sox, or even in downtown Boston, you'll see some Otani shirts every now and then. Because he's so marketable and so likable that it's just so easy to root for a guy like Otani. Not in the media for anything wrong. Never has gotten in trouble off the field. No problems in the locker room. No problems with him as a teammate. No problems with him and a head coach. No problems with him and any of his teammates on the field, off the field, that make an error. No problems any time that the guys around him strike out when he's on base because oftentimes Otani and Trout are the only guys on base and the only times giving that Angels team any offensive production. The Angels from 5-9 to nine in their batting order for the last year or two have had the worst OPS in batting average in baseball. If not the worst, bottom three. Because I think last year they were the worst in baseball with their 5-9 through nine hitters. And I think this year, they were, they're, at least for the first week and half of the season, had the worst OPS in baseball from their 5-9 through nine hitters. So Otani never gets mad at his teammates when he's on second base waiting for them to hit him in. He just doesn't get in trouble for anything off the field or on the field. Very easy play to root for. And you can see how beloved he is with how big that crowd was on Sunday. And I'm very happy and thankful I got the opportunity to see him play. As my brother said on the, on the way in here, I saw a text from him as I was coming in. He said that it was such a bucket list item seeing those two guys play because of how generational they both are. And he's right. And the point I was trying to make at the beginning of this argument, and I got a little bit sidetracked here, was how good Shoei Otani is and how good Mike Trout is. And, and they both deserve so much better than they've, than they've been getting with the Angels and, and for their careers there. Obviously, Otani and, and Trout, all they know in the MLB is being an Angel. And Trout's going to be an Angel for life. I don't see him ever being moved. Unless the Angels ever decide to be crazy and trade him. But as for Otani, he's a free agent at the end of the season. And as I said, I think he's going to get around $425 million for an eight-year deal, which would be about $53 million per year. And I think he wants to stay on the West Coast since coming into the MLB, there were just about a handful of teams that were going to give him the most amount of money you can give an international player to make them come from Japan to the MLB. You can't give a player from Japan as much money than you'd get in Japan since it's an incentive. You don't want a guy to say, oh, I can only make $15 million here in Japan, but I can make $50 million in the MLB, so let's just go and play in the MLB. No, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to earn that money. So Otani, I believe, got a smaller deal when he jumped into the MLB, a four-year deal that was, that was on the smaller end, which let me see if I can get his salary per year. His first in the MLB in 2018 – Got a $545,000 salary, had a $3 million salary in 2021, a $5 million salary in 2022, and had a $30 million salary this year in arbitration. But he's only made $39 million in salaries over the last five years in the MLB, and he's going to crack and break the bank this year. And if you look at the teams that are most interested in him heading into 
The trade down at, at last year, the Yankees wanted him. The Mets were interested in him. The Padres were interested in him. The Dodgers were interested in him. And I think he wants to stay on the West Coast, even though the Mets want to break the bank for him. He's closest to the Japan time zone on the West Coast. And coming into the MLB, his top three teams, if I remember right, were all teams on the West Coast. Whether it were to be the Angels, the Dodgers, the Padres, the Mariners, I think he wants to stay on the West Coast. I don't think the Angels are likely to keep him, even though they want to keep him. I don't think they're going to. And if the Angels, by the time the trade deadline rolls around, they are just about, just about 500 or under 500, they could say, hey, this year isn't going to be our year. Let's flip Shohei and try to get prospects back. There's a chance because I don't think they're going to re-sign him. I think my right, right now my power rankings for the teams that I think can sign Otani, I think the Dodgers are number one. They made very limited moves this offseason. Besides getting Noah Syndergaard, they didn't make too many moves this offseason. They let Trey Turner go. They let Justin Turner walk. They let Chris Martin walk to the Red Sox. They let Cody Bellinger walk to the Chicago Cubs. I think they were planning on making a run at Shohei Otani this offseason. I think the Padres are in the mix as well, but they've already given out heavy deals to Fernando Tatis, Manny Machado, Yu Davish, Xander Bogats. I don't think they're going to be able to keep all of those guys together in Juan Soto and Shohei Otani. So they'd have to pick between Juan Soto and Shohei Otani. And I think after you trade all those prospects for Juan Soto last year at the MLB trade deadline, getting him from Washington, I don't think you're going to let him walk. Maybe they were to let him walk in the offseason in a year, a year from now, since I think he has one more year under his deal after the season ends. But I think if you look at it, I don't think they're going to be able to keep all of that core together and show him, Tony. So the Padres are out. I think the Mariners are out since smaller market team. I think Shohei Otani deserves to be in a big market team with a lot of recent success, even though the Dodgers have only been able to win one World Series in their last eight years of, of dominance. I think if you look at that team, I think they built well for the future. They have seven prospects in the top 100 in the MLB, and they've been able to build well. They only have one World Series. In the last 10 years, one since 1988. They won in 1988, and after that, only have won, which they won in 2020. But they've been one of the best regular season teams in baseball over the last eight years or so. And I think if you look at it, they made no moves in the offseason. I think they're gearing up for a Shohei Otani deal. And obviously the Mets, they're a potential team to watch out for as well. The Mets wanted Carlos Correa on a big deal, ends up falling apart because of medicals during the offseason. They end up letting him walk, and he goes back to Minnesota. And I think that could work out for the for the New York Mets. Because now they get to save all that money that, that they were going to give to Carlos Correa on a six-year deal when they adjusted the contract. They can take that money and throw it at Shohei Otani. They still have to pay Pete Alonso as well. So there's question marks for all these teams. I think the least amount of question marks there are of those three big powerhouse teams being the Dodgers, the Mets, and the Padres. Although I'd love to see him on the Red Sox. And I'm sure the Yankees would love to see him in a uniform as well which I just saw a Bleacher Report uh, notification today that the Yankees fans shop at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx had Shoei Otani Angels jerseys on sale because he was in town and obviously they want to appeal to some of the fans and I think maybe they want Shoei to see that. Say, hey, we're selling your jersey in the store. We're not selling anyone else's jerseys. We're not selling Vladimir Guerrero Jr. jerseys in this store. We're not selling Rafael Devis jerseys in this store. We're not selling Mookie Betts jerseys in this store. We're not selling 
Juan Soto jerseys in this store. We're not sending, selling Juan DeFranco jerseys in this store. I think the Yankees threw that out there just so Shohei Otani would see it. I do. So I'm sure the Yankees would love to see him. I would love to see him on the Red Sox. But the Red Sox really, typically besides giving Rafael Devers that big contract, they've been uh, reluctant to try to, to try to give those big deals. They've neglected, obviously, giving out the big contracts that they've been so used to giving out for the past 10 years or so, or 15 years or so. The Red Sox and the Yankees have always been the two powerhouse teams that want to pay, the Dodgers as well. But the Red Sox have been reluctant to do that. And that's why I don't think he's going to be a Red Sox. I think the Padres have the best chance. I'd give the Mets the second best chance. And the third best chance, I'd give the Padres. I would love to see him back in the Angels and have him run it back with Shohei Otani. But I think he wants to change the scenery. And he wants to go too far from Anaheim to L.A. if he chooses to jump and go to the Dodgers. And I'd love to see him in the Dodgers. I think the Dodgers are the most well-run organization in all sports. Whether or not you hate them because they always win and they're always a good team and they're annoying because every single year when the playoffs are all around, they're always a favorite and they don't typically win. Obviously, they've only won one World Series over the last 10 years, over the last... 12 and 23, last 35 years, only won one World Series. I think one thing that people fail to look at when they look at the Dodgers is how well they're run, top to bottom. Farm system, one of the best in baseball, six top 100 prospects. Their roster, willing to pay Mookie Betts, willing to pay Freddie Freeman, willing to play, pay Clayton Kershaw, willing to go and make a trade a couple years ago, the trade deadline in 2021, to get Max Scherzer and Trey Turner from the Washington Nationals. They're not afraid to go and make a big move. They're not afraid to go and make a big move. That's why I like the Dodgers. They're not afraid to go make a big move, and they can develop young talent. They know what they're doing. So I root for the Dodgers to do well. I root for the Angels to do well when I'm not rooting for the Red Sox. I like those two teams, but I think the Dodgers have the best chance to go out and get Shohei Otani. The Red Sox, this last weekend series... Finally found their footing, winning three out of four against the Angels and recovered very well. That's what the Red Sox really needed. They needed to find a way to get back on track. And besides a four-game sweep against the Tampa Bay Rays, the Red Sox would be in good position right now. They're eight and nine overall. You take those four games away against Tampa Bay, they'd be eight and five. Eight and five. On the road, three and four. Losing those four games to Tampa Bay on the road, they'd be they'd be three and zero oh on the road if that four-game series against Tampa Bay didn't happen. They recovered well, though. They did lose yesterday to the uh, Los Angeles Angels, losing game four, losing that game. Uh, it was The score was 5-4, to four, close game, one-run game, which every game against the Angels was close, 5-3, to 9-7, to 2-1. to one. All three of those games, the Red Sox winning from game one to game three. And then game four, the Red Sox lost 5-4. to four. But the Red Sox are finally finding their footing, and they're already up in this game right now. Uh, which now the Angels are up three to nothing over the Yankees, but the Red Sox are up in this game right now one to nothing, and they got that off of a Rafael Devers obvious single scoring Alex Verdugo after he had a double in the first inning. Verdugo on the day is already two of two with a double and a single with three total bases. He's up to a four eleven on base percentage, an eight eighty one OPS, and a three forty eight batting average on the year. He's been great. Justin Turner's already one of two. He's been great for the Sox. So I'm excited to see what the Sox look like come two or three weeks from now. They still have to play Minnesota for three-game series, two more games after tonight, then have Milwaukee for a three-game series, then Tampa Bay for three games, then Cleveland for three games, then Toronto for four games, then the Phillies for three games, 
Then Atlanta for two games. Then St. Louis for three games. That whole stretch there from now up until May 14th, that's going to be a big deciding factor of what the Red Sox want to do this season. They're playing a lot of good teams in there. Minnesota, very good team, 10-6 and six on the year. The Milwaukee Brewers have a really good offense and found ways to score early in the season. They have a good record as well. They're 12-5. and five. The Baltimore Orioles, they're 9-7. and seven. The Cleveland Guardians, probably the weakest division of baseball, one of them if not the weakest. They've found ways to win games. They're 9-9. Nine nine. They've found ways to win games over the last few years. They're 9-9. Nine nine. The Toronto Blue Jays found a way to get two wins against the uh, Toronto uh, Tampa Bay Rays, I should say. Excuse me there, I apologize. They found a way to take two out of three against the Tampa Bay Rays. The Rays were heading into that game, were 13-0. Found a way to take two against the Rays. Toronto found a way to take two out of three against the Rays. So Toronto's a good team. They're 10-7. The Phillies went to the World Series last year. Obviously, they've had a cold start. They're starting to find their footing. They got 7-10 on the year, though, now. Winning two of the last three games. Winning today 14-3 over the Cincinnati Reds, but did lose yesterday to the Reds 13-0. So even though they're 7-10, by the time they play the Red Sox, May 5th, they could be a different team and turn the season around for them. I mean, it's very early in the season. We're only 20 or so games in, 18 to 20 games in. Then the Red Sox have to play Atlanta, which Atlanta's been very good. They're an NL contender for the next three to five to eight years, probably. They're 13-4. and And then St. Louis, another weaker division. St. Louis, they are 7-10 to on the year, struggling, but have won two of the last four games. Did lose today, though, to the Arizona Diamondbacks 6-3. to They'll probably be better by May 14th, though. So that's going to be a tough stretch there for the Red Sox. Then they go to Seattle, or play at home against Seattle, then play San Diego on the road, then play LA on the road, and then play Arizona on the road. That stretch from now up until May 18th, even May 28th, after that Arizona Diamondbacks series, getting three games in Arizona, that's going to decide what the Red Sox want to do this season. And I'm excited to see. I know a lot of people lost hope in the Red Sox after they lost four games in Tampa Bay, which I wasn't happy with it. But the way I saw Tampa Bay was, even though I think they're a very good team, and I think I have them winning 88 games in my prediction, which I didn't even get to record that yet. That's another thing I've neglected to do. I still have to do that, record my predictions, and give you guys my win and loss record of every single team. I have them all written down. Still have to do it. Tampa Bay didn't beat many good teams to start the season. Washington, Oakland. Those aren't great teams to beat. So I don't really believe in Tampa Bay as much as most teams did. Even though 13-0 was a great start, I didn't believe in them as much. Which 13-0 tie the MLB post-1900 record for the most wins to, be got, to, most wins to begin a season. 13-0 tie the best record in the MLB post-1900 to start a season. 13-0. So very impressive. The Rays find win, ways to win games. Can't take that away from them. They find ways to win games. They're up 8 to nothing right now over Cincinnati. 8 to nothing over Cincinnati right now. They did lose today, though, in Game 1 to Cincinnati, 8-1. to Now they're up 8-0 in Game 2. Or yesterday, excuse me, I apologize. They lost yesterday, 8-1. to Now they're beating Cincinnati, 8 to nothing. I apologize there. I'm thinking today's Monday since yesterday was a day off. You think today's Monday, thinking yesterday was Sunday, but yesterday was Monday indeed. Today is Tuesday, so... They did lose yesterday 8-1 to to the Reds, but they're back up now 8-0 over Cincinnati. But if you look at their schedule to be in the season, Detroit, Washington, Oakland, 
The Red Sox even. Not the hottest schedule. And then dropping two of three to Toronto. So we'll see what happens. But I think the Red Sox, I know a lot of people lost confidence in them. I think the Red Sox will find a way to be in the playoff race by September. Whether or not they get in, I think they might just be outside. In my prediction, I have them missing the playoffs by a game. Giving them a little wiggle room, whether or not the ball rolls their way in September or doesn't, and they miss the playoffs by a game or two, they're going to have a chance, I think, in September. So we'll see what happens there. But I think Hyam Bloom's on the hot seat. If things don't work out this offseason, or I should say this season with what he did this past offseason, getting Kenley Jansen and Chris Martin and Adam Duvall, obviously Adam Duvall's injury isn't great, isn't ideal. Getting Masataki Yoshida was nice. Ryan Toppy was a good piece for the bench. Yoshida's been struggling a little bit, but I think he'll turn it around at some point. I think there's a chance that by February or March, the Red Sox have a new president of baseball operations. They'll probably do it in November, realistically, and by February March, they'll have a new guy in the front office making moves in the offseason. So we'll see what happens. But I think by November, it could be high in blooms and as a Red Sox president of baseball operations. He's the chief baseball officer for them. I don't think he'll be there much longer if this season doesn't work out. So he's in the hot seat. I think he wants to win, but whether or not he shows it, that's a different question. I know a lot of Red Sox fans are down on him, and rightfully so. You can't trade Mookie Betts and just get Alex Verdugo back as the only piece that was valuable. You can't do that. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. You, you saw what Juan Soto got traded for last year at the trade deadline to Washington. You could only imagine what Shohei Otani would have been traded for last year at the trade deadline, even though the Angels were reluctant to give him away, and rightfully so. The Red Sox have a tough stretch over the next month, but if they can find a way to win some of those ball games and maybe be, let's say, 30 ball games from now until May 18th, May 17th, if they can find a way to be 20 and 10 or 18, 12 over that stretch, I'm confident them. 18 and 12 is probably more realistic. 20 and 10 is very optimistic. Probably the king of wishful thinking there with the 20 20 and 10 prediction. But if they could be 18 and 12, maybe 17 and 13 over that stretch, I'd be confident in them. So we'll see what happens. As I said, they were up one to nothing in that game tonight. Chris Sale is on the mound for them, pitching very well for them. He has given up just one hit uh, in the first three innings of the game with seven strikeouts in his first 12 batters faced, getting nine outs. Already has seven strikeouts in the first nine outs, giving up one hit, no runs, and just one walk with 33 strikes out of 49 pitches in three innings, lowering his ERA to nine on the year. Sonny Gray is the starter for the Minnesota Twins, he's been great for them all year. He's got a .9 ERA now updated on the year. Heading into tonight, though, his ERA was, give me one second here to get this. His ERA heading into tonight was .53, giving up just one earned run in 17 innings pitched with 19 strikeouts with seven walks on the night. Five hits allowed, one run, five strikeouts, one walk, 64 pitches in three innings against the Red Sox. So we'll see what happens for the Sox, but... As I said, I think they could have somewhat of a decent stretch where if they can beat some of those good ball teams, right, ball clubs right there, they could be a team in the AL wildcard race towards the end of the season. I know it's not something that every Red Sox fan wants to hear. They don't want to hear, oh, we're competing just for a wildcard spot. But considering where this team is at talent-wise, that would be impressive considering that even though they should be better than they are right now, the division's so good that the Red Sox could just be somewhere in the mix towards the end of the season in the playoff race. I think that would be somewhat of a positive. And as I said, I know Boston fans don't want to hear that. We're used to winning. We're used to the Bruins being so good. We're used to the Celtics being good. We're used to the Patriots. Even though a Patriots fan, everyone around here is used to the Patriots being good. Everyone is used to winning around here. Nobody wants to say, oh, we're just setting up a wild card spot. They want to be like the Celtics and the Bruins 
and be competing for Stanley Cup final and NBA finals this year. Just like the Patriots, every year Tom Brady competing for Super Bowl. Everybody wants to win. And I know we're spoiled as Boston fans. We're spoiled seeing all these wins. Even though I'm not a Patriots fan, a Patriots fan, Patriots fans are spoiled seeing all those wins of Tom Brady. Six Super Bowls. Seeing one Bruins Stanley Cup final in my lifetime. That's spoiled. I'm also spoiled seeing a Celtics finals win in 2008. I'm spoiled seeing the Red Sox win four times in my lifetime. 04, 07, 13, 18. I'm spoiled seeing the Giants win two Super Bowls. I mean, that's just reality. We're used to winning and we just want to win. We expect to win. But the realities of sports, it's like a game of basketball. There's games where things are going to go your way. Just like in sports, there's going to be a stretch of eight to ten years where things are going your way, and then you're going to have a downtrend. It's a game of runs, just like the game of basketball. Eight all runs, four runs, three all runs, 12 two runs, 15 three runs. The game of basketball is all about runs. Who is going to have enough runs in them to outlast the other team? And I know Boston fans were just used to winning, so we don't really want to hear the, oh, it's just you know, something we're going through here. It's just a phase of us you know, trying to find our footing. We don't want to hear that. We want to be a team that's competing to win a World Series. Is this team good enough to win a World Series? I don't know. I mean, probably not, realistically. If I think they're going to be in the wildcard race toward the end of the season, I don't really see them winning a World Series. If I saw them winning a World Series, they'd be second or third in the division. But I have them, I think, at fourth in the division to finish the year, being a game or so, or a game or two away from Tampa Bay. I feel my predictions were for that. But anyways, there's my talk about the Red Sox. Now I'm going to jump to talking about the Bruins, and then that'll probably be the conclusion of the episode here. I know it's 8.14. I apologize for starting late. Had my sister come to the studio from work. She's always wanted to come in and listen to the acoustics in here and hear what it's like playing music over the radio here. And the speakers in the studio are elite. There's, there's nothing like it in the studio. When you hear the speakers, it's like the artist, whoever you're listening to, is singing in here with you. That's what it sounds like. It's just such high quality it's just uh, it's so professional sounding. So she has always wanted to hear what it sounded like. I didn't have class today. My class at 4.30 was canceled. It was a Monday schedule here at BC that was canceled. So I had the opportunity to come in here early and play some music for us. I apologize for the wait start. I'll be out of here in just about 10 minutes or so. I'll talk about the Bruins, talk about the Boston Marathon, and then probably get out of the studio here and let you guys go enjoy the rest of the Red Sox game against the Twins. And then also let you guys enjoy the Celtics game against the uh, Atlanta Hawks, which is the Celtics are up 63 or 67 to 53 with 951 to go in the third quarter. The Celtics have 21.7 rebounds and three out of five shooting from three out of Jason Tatum. Jalen Brown, 11 points, three rebounds, two assists. Malcolm Brogdon, seven points, five rebounds, six assists with one of three shooting from three. Brogdon also has a block and a steal. As for the Hawks, DeAndre Hunter has 10 points still. Hasn't scored anything since the first quarter. Trey Young, 14 points, one rebound, five assists. And DeJounte Murray, 11 points, three rebounds, and assist off three of six shooting from three. As for the Cavs in the Knicks game, the Cavs are up 28-24 with nine minutes to go in the second quarter. So only a quarter and change into that one. And the Clippers will be playing tonight, tip-off at 10 o'clock on TNT against the Phoenix Suns for game two. So if the Clippers can find a way to steal this game tonight, I think they're in a great position. Without Paul George obviously being there for the rest of this series, realistically, if they can find a way to win this game, be up 2-0 heading into L.A., they'd be in great position to win the series and face Denver with Paul George hopefully back and healthy. So we'll see what happens there. Now I'm going to talk about the Bruins really quick. They got their first win of the playoffs yesterday, beating the Florida Panthers 3-1. And a difference maker in that game for the Bruins was their ability to get quality shots on goal. Even though Florida outshot them 32-29, 
the Bruins had a lot of good quality shots on goal. They were missing. David, uh, or not David, David Pasha did play, actually scored in that game. Jake DeBrus scored a goal. And then uh, Brad Moshin scored the other goal for the Bruins. The Bruins winning 3-1. to one. And then Matthew Kachuk had the other goal in the game for the Florida Panthers. The Bruins winning that with 3-1. to one, Scoring one goal in the first, two in the second, and then it was scoreless in the third period between both teams. But the Bruins had a lot of good quality shots on goal in that game. They found a way to go 1-2 of two on the power play, which the Bruins were struggling towards the end of the season on the power play. And for a team that was 60, that is now 65-12-5 overall, or 65-12-5 in the regular season, now 66-12-5 overall, saying that the team can't have a weakness is not something that should come as a shock. I mean, even when you win 65 games, 66 games, you're not going to do everything perfectly. The Bruins were struggling on the power play. Without Patrice Bergeron, you can't expect them to be better. But they won a two yesterday, and you could see in that first power play shift for the Bruins, they were missing Patrice Bergeron as their sentiment. But even a team that wins 65 games during a season, you're going to have weaknesses somewhere, right? You're going to have weaknesses somewhere. Whether it's a fourth line, the Bruins are great depth-wise, it's not really the issue, but you're going to have issues somewhere, and the Bruins were struggling at one point on the power play. They were struggling at one point on the power play. Which your power play percentage now, though overall in the year is 22.2%, which is 12th best in the NHL. The Bruins have been great offensively, Number one in the NHL in points with 135. Number two overall, uh, that was 135 points overall in the regular season. Number two overall in goals with 301. And number one in goals against with 174, giving up the least amount of goals per game. They were eighth best in shots against, ninth best in shots per game. The Bruins are great overall everywhere. But the one weakness towards the end of the season was the power play. But they found a way to score yesterday one of two, and that was a big difference maker. Huge difference maker for them. Huge. And the goalie for the Florida Panthers, who probably will start game two, is Alex Lyon. He's a 30-year-old goalie from Minnesota. And yesterday in that game, he made 29, uh, 26 saves on 29 opportunities with a 75, uh, 70, or 89% save percentage overall. Saving 26 of 29 shots faced. Overall in the regular season, 2.89 goals against average with a 914 save percentage. Had a 9-4 record overall in the regular season. The Florida Panthers, 42-32-8 and 32 and eight overall in the regular season. Very scrappy team. They have an ability to score, which they do have some talented players. They were 6th best in the NHL in goals this past year with 288. 3.51 goals per game, which is 6th best. They weren't great in goals against, though. 272 goals allowed, 3.32 goals against per game, which is 21st best in the NHL. So in the bottom half in the NHL defensively, but they were top half in offense with the sixth most goals in the NHL. And they find a way to score on the power play. They had 10th best in the NHL at 22.8% in the power play, but they were 0 of 2 yesterday against the Bruins. That's obviously a big difference, make a limiting power play opportunities and not giving up goals when you do give a power play opportunity to the other team. And the Bruins on the penalty kill have been good. The Bruins are good on the penalty kill, which let me give you their stats there on that. 87.3% on the penalty kill, which is first best in the NHL. Number one best in the NHL. So, if you look at that Bruins team, they're playing great hockey right now. They've been playing great hockey all year. Obviously, winning the most games in the regular season. Winning the President's Trophy, which the President's Trophy hasn't really translated to winning the Stanley Cup Final, you know, in recent years. But I think this Bruins team could be a different team. And even though I haven't given my NHL Stanley Cup predictions, I'll probably record an episode on that uh, in the next few days. I still have to do my first-round mock of the NFL Draft. Finish that from what I was doing last Thursday, or last Tuesday, because next Thursday, a week from this coming Thursday which is April 27th, is the first round of the NFL draft. So i got to give 
my first round mock, finish that, hopefully the next day, give a mock 2.0 maybe this coming weekend, and then give you my final mock draft next Tuesday before the NFL draft is on Thursday. So I got to do that still. I have to record my MLB predictions for the season. A little bit all, all over the place. I'm sorry for being behind there. And I still have to give my NHL predictions here, uh, which I didn't end up doing a bracket before it started, unfortunately. So I'll base everything off of what I think would happen regardless of what happened in these games that happened yesterday. And I would have had the Islanders winning in six or seven games anyways. They lost yesterday. I would have had the Bruins winning in five games. They lost yesterday. Uh, they won yesterday. I apologize there. They did win yesterday. I would have them winning probably in five games. I would have had the Edmonton Oilers winning in five games over the LA Kings. The Oilers lost yesterday to the LA Kings. So I'll keep my predictions the same with whatever I thought they would have been before the series started. I'll keep you guys posted on that. As the Bruins game two is tomorrow night at 7.30 at home. Then the Bruins will be playing on, it is the 21st, which will be on Thursday at 7.30. The Bruins will be playing, or Friday, I apologize, they have Friday at 7.30 at Florida. That'll be game three. Uh, for the Bruins, though, one thing they have to just continue to do, what they've been doing best, whenever they do give up a, a penalty, and obviously you're on the penalty kill, limit opportunities. Obviously, you don't want to give penalties, you don't want to make mistakes. But they've been great penalty kill-wise. Keep that up. Keep giving up. Uh, keep lighting up shots on goal. That's obviously big. And find health. The Bruins, you know, were injured heading into yesterday's game with an illness. The Bruins were all sick in the locker room yesterday with illnesses, which let me get the rundown here. The Bruins were without Patrice Bergeron, obviously, yesterday. He had a lower body injury and an illness. Then they obviously had Lena Salmark, their goalie, who was the best goalie, or one of, if not the best, in the NHL this past year, the best in my eyes. But Lena Salmark, one of the best goalies in the NHL, was questionable for yesterday's game with, uh, with an illness. And a couple other pieces as well that were out with illnesses for the Bruins yesterday. Jeremy Swayman uh, was out. So those are a couple guys I just named there. Swayman was obviously out with that illness in uh, yesterday. And then obviously Lena Salmark as well was a game-time decision. He ended up playing. Uh, Patrice Bergeron was a game-time decision. He was out with a lower body injury. Hopefully get him back healthy. Still could miss game two. But ultimately, I think the Bruins probably are fine without him. They could probably still win you know, the series in five games without him. You want him healthy, obviously, for later on in the playoffs. You want to rush him back and get him more injured. So we'll see what happens with the Bees. Game two being tomorrow night. I have the Bruins winning this series in five games. And now I'm going to jump to my last segment of the night, which it's only going to be a couple minutes. And I'm talking about the Boston Marathon. Give a couple minutes on that, uh, which I'm lucky enough to go to BC where Com Ave is right outside of my door. And yeah, I can just walk right down the street, three-minute walk to get to Com Ave and have the opportunity to see all the runners. And it's an honor being able to see people come from all over the world to run it, people with all different stories. Every single person running that marathon yesterday whether they were running for a different cause, whether it was their first marathon, whether they were training for one year, whether this was their 20th marathon, whether or not they wanted to run in the rain yesterday, everyone in that marathon yesterday had a different story, and I just enjoyed being able to cheer everyone on. I had some friends running it. One of my friends from BC, one of my lifelong friends from Southie, Tim Smith, he ran it yesterday, got to see him run it. One of my family friends, Sarah, was running it, got to see her running it. One of my friends from Dorchester was running for the Martin Rigid Foundation. Got to see her running it. Lily, she was running. Got to cheer her on. Got to cheer on my friend Brian, my, my roommate Will from freshman year. He was on the show earlier this year, I believe in November, December. 
he came on uh, in, onto the air and uh, for the Primetime Sports Podcast, he came in to give his thoughts. I believe around that time was the Red Sox offseason and the NBA where we were talking about the Nets and the Celtics and the Clippers. But his friend from home was running the Boston Marathon. His friend Brian got his cheer him on. Got to cheer on as many people as I could, obviously, and even people I don't know I was cheering on. And when you're there in the right there against the guardrails, you see people that are hustling, that can still go the extra five miles, and you're seeing the pain of what it's like running 21 miles to that point. Heartbreak hill is hard. Then after that, after you past mile 21, everything's downhill just about. But you see a lot. You see people hustling. You see people walking because they can't keep up. You see people trying to stretch and, and having you know cramps, which I was helping one kid yesterday right on the side. I uh, saw him with his head down against the Goddard. went right over to him and talked to him for a minute, making sure he was all right. But one thing I love about the Boston Marathon is everybody's running and everybody has a different story. Whether or not you know their story, you know everybody's running it and everybody's determined to get to the finish line. I think that's the beauty of a marathon. Whether you do it in three hours, two and a half hours, five hours, six hours, seven hours, you have to walk a third of it, walk all of it, run all of it, run four-fifths of it, whatever it may be, whether it's your best day running or your worst, the goal is to finish the marathon and if you're able to do that, that's an accomplishment on its own. But even just setting up for the marathon and training and lacing up your shoes and getting to the finish line or even getting to the starting line and just lacing up and being there with everyone else, I mean, that's an opportunity that's once in a lifetime. You can't really take that for granted. That's an accomplishment on its own, just being able to get there. Even if you can't finish it and you go only halfway because your buddy gave out or you just didn't have it in you that day. Or for other circumstances, that could happen, obviously. When you're running, I mean, anything can happen. And... You also see how great people are too. You see a lot of people cheering on the sidelines. And then even yesterday, there was a girl running that ended up got lightheaded, right? And she ended up falling uh, right on the side of the course. And I ran over and another guy ran over too to try to make sure she was all right. I couldn't get over the guardrails, but one guy was already on the other side and he ends up taking her to the medical tent uh, with the help of another runner. Uh, one of the runners that was running by her stopped and this was probably about 3.30 yesterday, 3 o'clock. So it wasn't, you know, the elite runners. Obviously, elite runners probably wouldn't stop, you know, for a runner behind them. But people that are running, you know, for foundation or whatever, and they're just running, you know, to obviously finish and, and obviously represent the name, you know, on their shirt. They could obviously take the opportunity, you know, if they want to, to try to help that person in need there. And I saw one runner and one person that was on the other side that was cheering on some runners on the sidewalk. Jump over the fence, uh, which he was already over the fence anyway since he was on the other side, but jump over and help her and walk her to the medical tent uh, down uh, towards BC. I was, you know, I was on BC's, you know, campus right on Com Ave between a couple of residence halls. But if you were further up Com Ave towards the 2000s part of Com Ave, you would see uh, a medical tent right there, right by St. Ignatius Church. And there was somebody there, a medical tent there that uh, a couple of people walked that, you know, lady to that, that ended up passing out. So it's great obviously, to see people come together for that. And obviously you see all the pain and, and the blood, sweat and tears that go into a marathon and, uh, you see a lot of people making their dreams come true and and obviously getting to the marathon itself is an accomplishment, being able to raise all that money and then obviously, you know, lacing it up is another challenge on its own. But every single marathon, whether you're running the marathon or not, even in life, I mean, every single thing in life, you know, starts with a single step. Every single marathon starts with a single step, whether or not you're trying to go professional and go play in the NBA or you're trying to go get a big job and you're playing, you know, right now, every single marathon, every single, you know, challenge in our life starts with a single step, just like you can see the Boston Marathon. So... That was obviously an honor being able to see the runners run by. And that was my last marathon here at BC. I got to see the marathon last October, which was the makeup for the marathon of 2020. October 2021, the marathon came back for the makeup of 2020 since uh, the marathon didn't happen because of COVID. 
I got to see that. But then March or April of 2022, didn't get to see that marathon since it was Easter weekend. But got to see this one and got to finish my college career uh, and cheer runners on as much as I could, which was great. So anyways, that's all I had for tonight. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. I appreciate it as always. I apologize, as I said, for starting this episode late. Uh, I apologize for starting. I think it was around 7.15. Here are 8.30. I want to close out around 8. Added an extra hour, uh, extra half hour to make this an hour and 11 minute episode. So thank you guys, guys so much for taking the time to listen. It does mean a lot to me. And I'm, I'm going to give a few quick shout outs, as I always do. Every single episode, it does mean a ton to me with all of you guys listening in. Shout out to the Loftus family. Tim Loftus is my biggest fan. Got dinner with him this past Friday, him and his wife. Great to go out to dinner with you guys and have my family out with you guys at Stockyard. Obviously being able to talk with you guys about sports and everything else, about all the memories we have on the beach of the Cape. That was obviously an honor on its own. So thank you guys uh, for always listening in. Much appreciated. Thank you, Auntie Lisa, for always listening in. Thank you to my Uncle Frankie, Frankie John and Trace for always listening in as well. I appreciate that. Shout out to the O'Malley family. Thank you for always listening in. Shout out to my family, my siblings, my parents. My sister, Laurie, was in the studio tonight for a few minutes. Thank you for listening in for Minute Live. She got to see me start this episode live, which is pretty cool. Thank you guys all for listening in. It's much appreciated. I only have, let me see how many Tuesdays after this. So today's the 18th. I'll have next Tuesday, April 25th from 7 to 8. I'll have May 2nd from 7 to 8. I'll have May 9th from 7 to 8. I'll have May 16th from 7 to 8. And then May 22nd is my graduate from B- my graduation from BC. So I don't think as of now I'll be here May 23rd to give that last episode there. But hopefully we'll see if I can do maybe episodes live over the summer here or not. Uh, I'll let you guys know and keep you guys updated on that. But if not, I'll be doing my podcast on Spotify, uploading it to Spotify, uh, Apple Music, which I still have to do Apple Music. still have to sign up for that. But it's not on Apple Music yet. I apologize. But I'll get on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio podcasts, uh, the iHeartRadio app. You can get it on there and you can also get it on YouTube as well. Uh, so I'll keep you guys updated on that, but just about four episodes after this, and maybe I'll do some Wednesday or Thursday night episodes along the way there just to fit some more guests on that I've been trying to get on. But anyways, much appreciated. Thank you guys for always listening in. It does mean a ton to me. I hope you guys all have a great rest of your night. Hope you got, hopefully you guys all have a great week and I will see you guys next Tuesday night, April 25th and 7, 8 o'clock. Be on the lookout. Uh, on Spotify over the next few days, I'm going to give my MLB predictions, which, as I said, I've been meaning to do. I'll give you my NFL mock draft, my 1.0 mock draft, uh, with all 31 teams in the first round making a pick and what teams I uh, have taking which players. There's only 31 picks in the first round this year with the Miami Dolphins losing their first round pick due to tampering uh, with Tom Brady a few years ago in 2019. And then I'll also give an NHL playoffs prediction, hopefully, in the next day or two. So thank you guys for listening in. It's much appreciated. Hope you guys stay safe and stay well. I'll be back with you guys next Tuesday night from on April 25th from 7 to 8 o'clock. Thank you guys. Have a good one. Take care, and I'll see you guys next week. Thank you.